Lord, we just thank for this opportunity we have to come to worship you and gather together. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word. Show us what you would want us to see through this section of scriptures. And we just thank in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 1. 1 Corinthians? First, Kings. First, Kings. All right, how about 1 Kings? Did I say Corinthians? Yeah. <laughs> I guess I wanted to go someplace else. I've been reading Corinthians in uh, my Bible oh, reading. 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. Let's get to the right place. I was too. I was even looking right there at it. So, hey, I guess it's good to be perfect. <laughs> and it came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he was pleased to do, that the Lord appeared unto Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have hallowed this house which you have built and have put my name there forever and my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. And if you will walk before me as David your father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David your father, saying, There shall not fail you a man upon the throne of Israel. But if you shall at all turn from following me, you or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them in this house, which I have followed for my name, which will I cast from my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. And at this house which is high, every one that passes by shall be astonished and shall hiss, and they shall say, Why has the Lord done this unto the land and to this house? And they shall answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have taken hold of other gods, and have worshipped them and served them. Therefore has the Lord brought upon them this all this evil. So here we have Abraham of Abraham. I'm having a hard time tonight. <laughs> Solomon being given a repeat of the covenant that was given to David. All right. He's built the tabernacle of the te the temple. He's built his palace. He built his his he built the, the house for his wife. They built. We'll see later on in the chapter. He built the walls of Jerusalem and the walls of other cities and stables for all of his horses and chariots. He's been a very busy man uh, for the first 20 years of his kingdom. And God comes to him again in a vision. And remember, in the first vision. He asked Solomon, you know, what would you desire of me? Solomon asked for wisdom. God said, because you didn't ask for the life of your enemies and peace and long life and all the other things you could have asked, I'll give you this. Now God comes back and reiterates the, the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant is that a king of David's line will sit on the throne forever. And it is true all through the line of Judah that somebody on David's line was on the throne all the way up until the to the Assyrian captivity and then Jesus came along from the line of David to be the Messiah and be the king that will sit on the throne forever from that point on. So th th we're going to see this but here we're going to see the slight differences in the promise given to Solomon. 
It says the Lord appeared to him as he did in Gibeon. The Lord said, uh, as he did in Gibeon, which means what? He showed up in a dream. Remember, that's how he showed up to, to Solomon the first time in a dream. So here he showed up to God, to Solomon in a dream again. Uh, that's what it means by in the same manner. And it says, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have hallowed this house which you have built and put my name there forever and my eyes shall and my heart shall be there perpetually. So God has honored Solomon and David, David's desire was to build a house for God. Solomon builds this house for God and God says, I'm honoring your request. And remember what he told David, he goes, I didn't even ask for a place to worship, so what do you, why are you wanting to build this? But because David wanted it so much, he goes, okay, I'll let your son build a house. And how important is Jerusalem and the temple to, to uh, God? So important that he keeps it there during all these times when they've been misbehaving all the way to the Assyrian captivity. He lets them rebuild it so that Jesus can go into the, go in there and be not worshipped as he should have been and have the uh, curtain torn from top to bottom when Jesus died, destroys that temple, and then we're going to have a third temple that will be in place during the Millennial Kingdom where sacrifices will go on in the Millennial Kingdom, not the sacrifices for forgiveness of sin, but this, the burnt offerings for total commitment to God and the thanksgiving offerings, all right? Which some, we have to make sure we understand. There's, you know, we, I bring this up so often, there's... There's several different offerings that God uses for his people to worship. The sin offering will not be offered during the millennial kingdom because Jesus was the sin offering. There's no, no sense in, in it. The thanksgiving and the burnt offerings will go because those are the offerings of dedication of people to God. And so those ones will be allowed to go on. Uh, but he says, I will put my name there forever. Uh, during all of time, all the way through the millennial kingdom, the temple will be used. Now, we're told in Revelation that there won't be a temple in the new heaven because God is our God and he is everywhere. There's no need for a temple. There's no need for light. There's no need for any of this because God is everything. So we look at that, headed there. But now in verse 4, we see that his is conditional. And if... You walk before me as David your father walked in integrity of heart and in righteousness to do according to all that I have commanded and will keep my statutes and my judgments. So here's the condition. Solomon, behave. Do what you're supposed to. Now the question about this when you look at it, did David walk in perfect walk? Absolutely not. We looked at David and we saw all kinds of problems. He was a murderer, an adulterer. He was quick-tempered. He easily lied. But by the same token, he still came before God with a contrite heart to ask for forgiveness. Psalm 51 says, Against you and you only have I sinned. And, that, and that's his attitude. God, I have sinned against you. We're going to see Solomon have that same attitude at the end of his life after he starts out good, goes for years poorly, and then comes back to God at the end of his life. Good news for us, God is merciful. You know, God is so full of mercy that when we sin, he doesn't instantly destroy us. All right? He could have done that with Adam and Eve. He could have done that with Noah. He could have done that with everybody in the Bible. 
that when they disobeyed, instant, you know, oh, you deserve death, here it is, gone. You're, here's your lightning bolt, you're gone. Life would not last very long on the earth if he did that. But he is merciful and says, I'm going to give you time to repent. This is one of David's big gripes in the Psalms. You know, God, why, why, why does everybody look like they're doing good and I'm being abused? <laughs> and God says, just wait, just wait. They will get what's coming to them and you will get what your mercy gives you and grace gives you. And Solomon is given this conditional thing in the, and then in verse 5 and it says, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom upon Israel forever as I promised to David your father saying that there shall not fail a man to this, on, the, on the throne of Israel. So here we are. David was promised that his seed would be on the throne. God cannot break that promise because David's promise was unconditional. Right? Just as in the Noadic covenant when God said I will no longer send a flood to cover the to destroy the whole world it was unconditional. And no matter how bad a flood is going to be it's not going to destroy the whole world. All right? It may destroy a large area it may destroy a lot of people but it's not going to destroy the entire world because that was an unconditional promise. This Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional uh, promise to Abraham. Your seed will get everywhere your feet touch. So the only condition on his was Abraham walk around a lot. Wherever you walk and wherever you go is yours. So he had a, he had a good reason to walk around. Every right, every right. You know, can you imagine knowing that everywhere you stepped is yours? Whether you got it or not at the moment, it was yours. Yeah, that was the promise he had. Yeah, Abraham, walk around, go all over this place. Everywhere you go, everywhere your foot touches is yours. Your seed will be multiplied like the, the stars of heaven and the, and the grains of sand. You know, all nations will be blessed by you. Those that bless you will be blessed. Those, you know, all, of, all of the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. Everything to Noah was unconditional. David had an unconditional promise. Your seed will sit on the throne. Solomon has a conditional promise, which is good because Solomon's seed doesn't always sit on the throne. After a while, his seed dies out and one of his brother's seeds take over. It's still David's seed, but not necessarily Solomon's seed. All right? So this is something important for us to understand. He has a conditional promise, and his conditional promise is even worse because verse 20, um, 20, uh, verse 6 says, But if you shall at all turn from following me, you or your children, <laughs> and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship you, then I will cut you out of, out of Israel. This is quite a conditional one placed on Solomon. Solomon is told, you or any of your sons, turn and worship other gods, you will be rejected. And we know the story we're going to get into, but Solomon turns away from God and eventually starts worshiping the gods of his wives. And, you know, we've talked about that at various points, but it was a pretty simple thing. It was a known thing that was going to happen. You know, they bug him about building temples for their god. He finally builds temples for their god. And you know the next thing was they were bugging him about coming to the temple because he's never been there. You know, and then he finds himself there, and then he finds himself worshiping at their temples. 
Now, it's kind of an interesting thing. When we start down the path that is wrong, how easy it is to slip very far down that path. And we'll, you know, we'll go, well, you know, it's only one time. I, I, can, I, can, I can go drinking this one time, or I can go using the alcohol, the drugs this one time. I can, I can go to the party where I know sex and, sex and, and craziness is going to go, but I, I am strong. I, I won't be affected. You know, and we will rationalize doing it. We might even get away with it the first time. Maybe. Probably not. But, you know, after a while, if we keep that lifestyle, we will fall. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. And we see it in other people that are following the, following the right way. You know, and we want to be careful about this because God is putting it, don't step, don't even take a step down the wrong path. And we all do, I know that. But we need to get it into our mind that we don't even want to consider sin in our, in our mind. Not because, it, not, we don't even want to get to the place where we go, God's going to punish me for it. We need to get to the place where we're sitting saying, God, you don't even want me to think about this. I don't even want to consider it. And we need to get that way with all sin. You know, it is wrong. I don't even want to consider it. It used to be that way for divorce. Divorce was just something that was so rare because people didn't consider it. Now it's the first thing people consider oftentimes. We're having a hard time. I'm just going to get divorced. Everybody else is doing it. God will forgive me. And God says he hates divorce. Now, does that mean if you get divorced, everything's wrong? No, it just means that you're living in a lifestyle that God's not wanting you to live in, and there's going to be complications by it. The hardest thing about sin is it brings consequences that are going to affect the rest of your life. You know, and this is something that always comes into play. When you follow a lifestyle of sin, and then you try to get back with God and do things right, there's consequences that follow you. You know, people who've had children by multiple partners have trouble because now all of a sudden it's like, okay, who gets who gets what and who gets to be obeyed and who gets to be who gets to be the one that we listen to and all of that stuff, you know, and it's a and it can be a big problem. You know, how do we bring God back into our life when everything has been messed up? How do we where do we make our priorities? And it gets tough, and it and there's really no right answer at that point because you're bound to bound to lots of different things because you made lots of mistakes and you're bound to different things and you've got some problems to have to deal with and it's hard and you have to listen to God and, and pay attention to what God is asking you to do and it's not an easy easy thing to fix and we need to be careful Solomon's going to walk down this path and he's going to have long term consequences namely he's going to lose his kingdom uh, and it goes and you say, if you, turn, if you and your children turn away from me, don't keep my commandments or my statutes, which I have said, which is hard enough. We can't keep God's stead. And he goes, and, uh, and but you go serve other gods and worship them. How easy is it to serve other gods? Uh, we, we go, you know, a lot of people go, well, we don't bow down to statutes and everything, but how many of us have gods in our life that, that, Rival God for our time, our money, our ambition, huh? Well, anything can be an anything can be an idol. That anything that put, that we place before God. So if and people will say, you know, if you want to find out what's important into your life, look at your checkbook and see what you spend all your money on. 
All right. Does God get a good portion of your money, or is he kind of down at the bottom and everything else? Now, we understand rent and utilities have to be up there, but how many of us have made an idol out of stuff? We have a ton of debt that we're paying off, and a lot of money goes to debt because we have to have the stuff, and we have to have it now. Uh, how many people make their hobby an idol? You know, or their sports, or their television, or any activity. Church itself can become an idol. If we're not coming to worship God, church can become an idol. I'm coming for the wrong reasons, to be seen and to, to be at the right place, and not to worship God. Church itself can become an idol. We need to be very careful. Anything that places itself above God in our hearts is an idol. Easy to find in this. Easy. Easy to get wrapped up in things that take away time in the God's word, time with, time with, uh, with church and, and worshiping God. This is important for us to understand. And we're going to see Solomon go right into full-fledged idol worship. All right. He totally turns, turns away from God for a period of time. And you know, it's kind of hard. He's had two visions already with God. One where God promises him wisdom, which he gets, and one that gives him a promise that if you obey me, you're going to be, you're going to be blessed. And this is something interesting that we, we look at. Do you understand how we in our day have only the word of God to, to help us to understand who God is, how amazing it is that we worship him? When we have people here that have seen visions, had the prophets literally talking to them, the disciples had Jesus walking with them. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap, you know, because he goes, you know, blessed are you because you have seen. Well, so did the other ten. They had all seen Jesus too. They go, more blessed will be those who don't see. Who is he talking about? Everybody after them. Everybody after Jesus was ascended into heaven and was no longer seen in the, in the flesh or in the body is who he's talking about. Why? Because we literally have to take it by faith. That these guys told us the truth, that he is real, that he is true, every word of this is true. We have to take by faith. Now the more we study and the more we get to know him, the less it is by faith. The more it becomes reality in my life. Uh, my life after walking with God for as long as I have is not a whole lot of faith. Yes, there's still places where I'm being dealt with with faith, but I look at it and say, God, You've proven yourself true over and over and over again. I'm not even looking at most of it as by faith anymore because he has proved himself. You know, he's proved himself true. He lives in me. I know he lives in me, and I know he has made changes in my life, and he's been in control of my life. So I have no, it's not as much faith anymore because it's, it's more proven. Do I have sight? No, so technically it's still faith. But because he has so much proven himself, it's a small step over the pen instead of jump over the ditch. You know, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not even a step off into the unknown. It's like, okay, God, you proved, okay, I'm just going to step over the crack. It's not, you know, yeah, it's not completely 100% there, but I'm just going to step over the little, a little step. I would say it still has to be faith because it's not absolutely proofed. 
but the statement that we're at is that it is so well proven in my life that it's not really, it's not as much faith. Uh, let's say my example of sitting in these chairs. These chairs look sturdy enough to hold us all up and all of us sit down. Why? You know, because we have faith that the chair is going to hold us up. Is it possible that we're going to sit in one of these chairs that have a bent leg or, or a broken thing and instead of standing up we fall down? Yes. Okay, so it is still faith for me to sit in the chair even though every time I sit in the chair it holds me up so that it becomes less and less faith. When, I, when I'm walking up to these chairs, I'm not looking, I wonder if this chair is going to hold me up today. Well, all people have faith. Yeah. All, all of humanity has a measure of faith, and where do they put it in? Many people are putting it into their god, their false gods, or their sin. You know, if I get enough alcohol in my system, I have faith that I'm going to feel good. Even though over and over it doesn't, it, you know, it might the first couple of times, but after a while, over and over, it proves that it is not going to happen. It used to happen, so you're sure that it's going to happen again at some point. So you put your faith in that, even though it's you know, being disappointing. We put our faith in God, and he answers every single time. Maybe not at the speed we want him to answer. Maybe not in the way he wants us. But over time, when we look at our life, we go, God, you've always given me the best answer. Might not have liked it when you gave it to me, but it was the best answer. And this is the good news for us. You know, there's times when we look at it and say, God, you know, I sure don't know, I don't know why you're putting me through this. It seems like I'm in hell right now. And God says, I've got a plan for you. You know, just get to the end, walk with me, and see the, see the end result. And we're going to get to the end result, and we're going to look back, and we're going to say, wow, God, you really did have a plan. Look, you know, when we see it from his perspective and see it from the other side and we see, oh, wow, this is a beautiful picture and here's my part of that beautiful picture. Uh, so, yes, faith is still faith even if it's so committed that it's not a blind faith anymore. Well, we can choose things that aren't what God wants us to choose. But it doesn't surprise him and he already knows that he were going to make that decision so that he will make, make that work together for good too. And that's a good thing. The promise is that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Not some things, not most things, not the times when I'm obedient. Uh, all things work together for good. Now, I may have to go through an awful lot to get to that good because I made bad decisions and, and made, some, you know, made some hard, hard things. But you know, sometimes we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes because we tend to look at our failures a little closer. God, what could I have done differently? What should I have done differently when we start looking at it? But when we are successful, oftentimes we don't look bother to look at it. All right, what did I do right? All right everything went right. Why do, I, why do I care what I did right? You know, well, it might be nice to know what you did right so you don't <laughs> so you make a deci right decision the next time. But you know, but it is true for us. We all have done that. When we fall flat on our face, like, wow, how did I end up here? And what did I do to get here? And we look at it a little closer. But when everything seems to be going along smoothly, that's the time we're in the most danger of turning away from God in the first place. 
because we start just thinking we're making good decisions and you know what hey everything's going along fine I don't I don't need to come to church as often I don't need to read my Bible as often I don't need to pray as often and the next thing you know we find ourselves flat on our face wondering how we got there because we got sated in our in our goodness and forgot that it was all a blessing of God and I've seen more people fall because they forget the blessings of God than during the hard times. Hard times make us turn to God. We may not like them. They're not fun. But you know, they always draw us closer to God, whereas easy times can oftentimes make us forget God. Because we, just, we get to the place where we just get used to the blessings. And we start looking at the blessings, not at the blesser. You know, and we start forgetting that it's all God who gave it to us, and we start getting very dependent upon what we can do. And it's something we need to be very careful. So during those good times, don't forget God. <laughs> Stay focused on God. Stay focused in his word. Keep, keep remembering that he is the giver of the blessings, and keep focused on him. Now, I'm going to tell you, you're probably going to fall more often when things are going good than when they're going bad. Because when they go bad, we go, God, I can't handle this. This is crazy. It's trouble. I don't want it. And we turn to him. So we need to be very careful when everything seems to be going right. When did David get into his trouble? Most of the wars were over. And he's staying at home instead of going to war. And one time when he's at war, he lo- out, at, uh, out at home instead of at war, he looks over and there's Bathsheba taking a bath on a rooftop next to him. You know, and all of a sudden, everything fell apart for a while. You know, how many times did he have other problems? David had some problems, and usually because it was when things were going good, and he stopped looking after God. And we can see it all through the scriptures. When things are going good, people seem to have more trouble because they stop thinking about God. It's not 100% of the time. We look at somebody like Joseph, and I'm sure Joseph made sins. You know, but you know, Joseph, there's nothing bad recorded about Joseph anywhere. Sold into slavery, become, you know, falsely accused of rape, and he's never, never in there does it say he gave up on God. Did he have hard days and bad days? I'm sure he did. Daniel is the only other person where nothing negative is said about. As a matter of fact, it said that the, all the guy, all the, you know, four, uh, hundreds of enemies, political enemies, tried to find something wrong with him to accuse him, and they couldn't find anything. That's somebody who's living a pretty good life. So is it possible? Enoch, Enoch we talked about the other you know, Sunday, he got raptured straight to heaven because, because God said, oh, you know, you're doing so good, you're walking with me. You know, so we look at this and say, Solomon has been told to behave, or you're going to lose your kingdom. Your children will not sit on the kingdom for all time, and his didn't. You know, they're going to die out at a certain point, and they're going to take another one of David's children, children's children, <laughs> to take over the throne. So Solomon gets a conditional promise and doesn't live up to it. And a lot of what God gives us is conditional. If you do this, I'm going to do this for you. He doesn't promise to bless us when we misbehave. Now his grace and his mercy sometimes give us blessings even when we misbehave. But he is not bound by any of his promises when we don't follow what he said. A salvation has no condition. We turn to him. 
And we, once, once we give ourselves to him, then we're his. That's, there's no condition. We can't lose it. He gives us eternal life. And I press that, press that point home with it. If he didn't give us, if he, did, if he gives us eternal life and, it's, and it can be lost, it, by definition, it's not eternal. All right? So we know that he gives us eternal life, so therefore we cannot lose it. We can't jump out of it. We, can, we can't decide we don't want it. If we truly have it, it's ours. Now, not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. I, you know, I understand that. If somebody says they lost their salvation, I'm going to tell them you either didn't have it or you didn't lose it. Okay, one, one extreme or the other. All right. What does it mean to get saved? Those of us who've been saved know what it means. I've turned my life over to God, and God lives in me and has changed me. Okay, and I hear people go, well, I don't know when I asked Jesus to be my Savior. Then I go, then you better make sure you've done it right because it doesn't sound like you know. All right, if you have to tell somebody that, that you got saved on a certain day, they're probably not saved. And I don't know the exact day, but I know that it, that it was in 1971 that I got saved. You know, I was 10 years old. Nobody in my family was a Christian, and I know I got changed. You know, when you are changed by God, you know you're changed by God. That doesn't mean you're going to grow straight line from that point on. You know, but you're going to know, I asked him into my heart, and he changed me. He made me a new creation. And this is important. I hear testimony after testimony of somebody saying, well, mom and dad told me I got, you know, went forward when I was four years old, five years old, six years old. I went forward with my friends at a you know, revival, revival service, and I said some words, but I never got changed. When, you're, when you become changed for Christ, you know it. And you know that he's making a change in your life, and, it's, and it, people notice. People notice when you're changed. Verse 7. God says, if you worship other gods, then I will cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house and I will, which I have hallowed for my name I will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall become a proverb and a byword among all the people. All right? This is a pretty serious uh, thing that's going to happen. He says, Israel will no longer be a nation. You know, King, you sin and lead your people into sin, and your nation's going to suffer. This is the importance that understands when a leader falls and does something wrong, if they don't repent, or even if they do repent, there's consequences on the group that they lead. Our nation has some serious problems coming its way because we've got so many leaders making ungodly decisions and pushing us in ungodly ways, and they're going to have to answer. And our nation is suffering because of it. We started on a righteous footing. Not necessarily Christian, but a righteous footing, Christian principles. And many of our founding fathers were Christians, and they built a Christian foundation to this country. And it's been chipped away at for 204, you know, 240 years. Been chipped away at, chipped away at, chipped away at. And to the point now where we're not, not sure where we stand, Decisions that are being made are very ungodly, and this nation will fall. It's not a matter of if it will fall. It will fall if we don't repent. And I'm not sure that we're going to repent. I'd love to see a great repentance in our country, but I don't know that it's going to happen. We will fall if we continue in the path that we are. We're on the, we're on the cusp of being judged because every nation has come to this point, and when they repent, 
They get to start all over again and start running back up the cycle again until they reject God. Why do we have all the troubles we have in this world? Why do we have all the murder and theft and, and adultery and fornication? Because we are getting further and further away from the truths that God has given us. When we were following God's truth, even, even if it was just kind of being forced, you know, they didn't really believe it, people still had an idea that it's wrong. The further we get from God, the more we don't recognize things are wrong. And then we, on top of that, we're teaching people that you're nothing but a bunch of animals anyway, evolved animals anyway, so go do what you want. You know, and they don't necessarily teach it that way, but really if that's what we're telling them, you're nothing but an animal, why are we going to be surprised when people start acting like animals? You know, if the strong win and the weak lose, which is the evolutionary mentality, and I, and I think I'm strong, then I might as well just force my, my way upon everybody else because, hey, I have the right. I'm strong. Hitler tried to do that. Stalin did that. Uh, um, every every uh, dictator tries to do that. I'm stronger than everybody else. I'm meaner, and I'm going to get my way until somebody bigger and meaner comes along. Okay, That's the mentality of the bully in the schoolyard or the workplace. I'm meaner and nastier. I can get what I want by just bullying everybody. And by the way, you know, because I am the high man on the evolutionary totem pole, I deserve what I get. This is the problem with anything that isn't God, because God says, humble yourself. Build up one another. Edify one another. Doesn't mean that we can't be, be strong and, and take good stance, but we're not going to take it at somebody else's expense. We're going to honor one another and follow God's leadership principle. For God, good leaders are servants, people who work for others. Now, if they get elevated and, and, and get some good position out of the deal, great. But they still, as long as they're remembering they're the servant, it doesn't matter. You know, I've seen pastors who were great servants, and I've seen pastors who wouldn't lift their finger to do anything in a church. You know, the bathroom needs to be clean. Not me. It's not my job. I'm the pastor around here. You know, uh, you know, and that's not the way it should be. The pastor should be willing to get in there. Now, if he's got a large church or a county church or the church is lifting him up, he probably won't end up doing very much of it. But he still needs to have that hard attitude that he's willing to get out and do it. You know, if I was to evaluate a pastor and I looked at that pastor and that pastor wasn't willing to lift his finger to do anything, pick up a piece of paper, you know, pick up a broom or a mop once in a while, uh, I'd probably say that's not the pastor I want to have around. Just because he, they're showing me they think they're so important that, that it's an, you know, not the place. Now, if you have a church of five, 6,000 people, 100, you know, 100, 200, 300 people, the pastor probably isn't going to do a whole lot of menial tasks. They're busy taking care of the body of Christ, which is their primary job, which is what the disciples told people when there was the big in Acts, when they go, you know, our widows are being mistreated because they're not being taken care of. And they go, should we take time out of studying and preaching to give out the food, find 12 men among you to, to be able to be deacons and we'll, we'll appoint them to do the the day-to-day -day mission. Was it that they were not wanting to do that work? No, it was that they were busy. First day the church started, 3,000 people got saved. Okay, they had a pretty good-sized church, and it keeps growing. 
Because in Acts, you're going to read, when we get to study starts in there in two weeks, and added to the church daily as, you know, and added to the church daily, added to the church daily, added to the church daily. There's several thousands of people that they're trying to teach and minister to. So their attitude was, you know, hey, we, could, we can do this, but we need to be studying and, and teaching rather than doing these menial tasks. Now, if the church had only been a couple hundred people, I would imagine they would have been right there taking care of those widows because it was going to be a great need. But we know we need to look at this, and Solomon has told, you know, when, you, when you're going to do it, I'm going to, I'm going to take this house away, and I'm going to cut off Israel. And we see that happen at the Assyrian captivity. And again, God is so patient. Every time he comes along, there's be a revival. After about every second king, there'd be a revival, and they'd come back to God, and then he'd fall down, and two or three kings later, there'd be a revival, and they'd fall down. And finally, God said, that's it. You're, you're, I'm, taking the, I'm taking and destroying this temple. And this is what God, the patience of God to me is so amazing. He was patient with the nation. He is patient with us. He is so patient with me and all the mistakes that I make and still allows me to do work for him. His great mercy and grace is so wonderful. And we're going to see, even though they fell, you know, Solomon fell right away. God could have said, okay, that's it. You're gone, Solomon. One of your brothers is taking over. And yet he didn't do it in Solomon's day. He gave Solomon the opportunity to repent, and Solomon did repent toward the end of his life. Now, his son was not a very nice guy. His son's a, son does not come back to God. Uh, and the next one doesn't do good with God. So we see, and then God says, okay, it's time for a new, new line. Uh, still in David's line, but not in Solomon's line. And so we see here, it says, they're going to become a byword and a proverb, and it says in verse 8, and this house which is high, everyone that passes by shall be astonished and shall hiss. This is kind of an interesting, interesting statement. Number one, they're astonished. Here is this beautiful building in ruins, okay, or a ruined building. It's the centerpiece of Jerusalem. It's at the top of the hill in Jerusalem. It stands at the top, and God allows it to be destroyed. It would almost be the same type of thing. I don't know how many people have been to Washington, D.C., and they're not on a hill. But anywhere in Washington, D.C., pretty much, you can see the Washington Monument. All right? It would be almost that same time. All of a sudden, the Washington Monument's destroyed. What happened to it? It's the centerpiece of the entire, the entire uh, cross at the center of, of D.C., and it's gone. Are all of you aware that the, the area in the downtown uh, where all the monuments are, forms a cross. It's a cross with the mon Washington Monument in the center of it. And then each direction, each direction you've got monuments on, on four other corners and it, it's formed into a cross on purpose. Yeah. Amazing the things I've put into this uh, country that are not, not noticed. He says they are astonished and they will hiss. And this is kind of a, that intake of shock that they have. It's not hissing in, in negative, but it has that negative, you know, the, the dragging in your breath, like, oh my goodness, what, is, what has happened here? Okay, and there's this idea, and there's an idea of a whistle involved with it, they say, you know, for defense and everything, but it's this astonishment. God's temple 
has been destroyed. The centerpiece of Jerusalem is destroyed. The centerpiece of Jerusalem during Jesus' day was the temple, Herod's temple, a huge building that everybody saw. But this is a big deal. God says to, to Solomon, you reject me and I'm going to destroy this building. Yeah, and it's kind of an interesting thing to see how God does what he says. God didn't want a building in the first place. He allows them to build a building. This building actually becomes an idol to them over a period of time. And God knew that that would happen. This is a problem even with us as Christians. I think this is why there is not a single relic or book or picture of Jesus anywhere or anything that he, were, that he built. Because if there was, there would be Christian pilgrimages to that, that idol all the time. Jesus did this one. Look at the, this. Is, Jesus did this. What a, what a pain that would be. I have enough problem with that when people talk about in the Bible with the red letter. They go, see, it's written in red. And, well, Jesus said that. And the whole book is his word. Just because he said it in the New Testament and it's written in red is not any more special than the rest of the book. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? Because I've had people take it's written in red and make a idol out of those words. Good words. Good things to study. But somehow they're more important than the rest of God's word makes it an idol. I was kind of taught in a way, or I thought that it was until later on I found out it wasn't. Oh, believe me, I grew up that way. Yeah, I, I grew up that way where that's his words, you know, and uh, I didn't think about any other I words. heard that many times growing up. Look, this is Jesus' words, they're written in red. And it took me getting to the place that, where, where it finally dawned on me that Paul said that all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. All words. Jesus is the word of God, and all the word of God is inspired. So Genesis 1.1 is Jesus speaking. Revelation 22 is Jesus speaking. And everything in between... <laughs> is Jesus speaking. And I'm sure that that is why it was put in there. You know, look, pay attention, this is Jesus not worshiping, but the extent of it becomes these are more important than anything else. You know, and we have to be careful about that. You know, I've got a couple of my Christian movies that I almost get rid of because they love the, it. It's written in red. I'm going, I want to strangle you. It's not more important, you know. But that is the general attitude. Jesus said it. While he was on this world, he said it, so it's more important than what he said in Genesis 1-1 and what he said in Genesis 2 and what he said in Deuteronomy and what he said in Leviticus. I never thought of it like that. Jesus did the whole Bible. Yeah. You know, not just his parts. And believe me, I grew up thinking that way because that's what I had heard from so many people. But I'm not going to, I mean, if somebody's going to make a big deal of it, I mean, that's, they're going to grow. If it isn't inspired by God and his word, it's not worth following and then so if that's the case, we should just get a red-letter Bible and take out everything else that's not red letters and just follow Jesus' words. But you know, unfortunately, having said that, there's a lot of people that actually believe that. Just study what Jesus said. The rest of it's not that important. But when you really, truly believe that every word in the Bible is God's word, then you understand that the red letters are not that important because they are his word anyway. So God just put his 
His words came out of Jesus' mouth and they put them in red. All of these words came out of God's. God's mouth and Jesus' words and and they didn't put them in red even though they could have. Because they're still his words. But again, it's a very, do you notice how subtle that is though? Okay. Uh, if I truly believe that every word of God in the Bible is God's word, then just because Jesus in the, as a human being representation of God is not more important than the rest of the word of God. But it, I can be very t- touchy if I go, go the other direction because it isn't all that, it's not that important because all of it is his word. And this is why I keep saying every word in the Bible has importance in it. Every word. God has it in there for a reason. And to say, well, Jesus' words are more important than every other word that he inspired, you know, makes me have a problem. So we need to be careful. This is also why some of the translations bother me. Unfortunately, there's no perfect translation out there. The only way you're going to get a perfect translation is to learn Greek and Hebrew. And even then, it depends on you and how well you understand it. That's why it can, uh, I always just first believe it was God and God. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. It wasn't Jesus because they're talking all about, you know, God. They're not talking about Jesus, but only in the New Testament. See, that's how, yeah. for a long time, that's how I just figured it was, you know, okay, God wasn't there, but no, Jesus wasn't there, but he's here in the New Testament. But now since you, I've been learning from you, I've that word God is a totally different word than we interpret it as. Yeah. Yeah. Because that very first word, in the beginning, God is Elohim, a plural word for, a singular word for a plural God. So there's more than one, more than one reference being made in that very first sentence. So the Trinity, the Trinity is already being talked about in the very first verse of the Bible that we don't see in English. That we don't see it in English. I was. Before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. So he was there. In Genesis, is it true that the, uh, the criteria for getting in the New Testament was that all of them had to be eyewitness? That was one of the things that there had to be in there. Uh, they had to know who the author was. They had to be quoted by, by other first century uh, church fathers. Uh, so that's why most of the books that people say were thrown out, number one, they weren't even written until 400 or 500 A.D. Uh, so they, they were never quoted by the early church fathers because they didn't exist. And they all taught things contrary to what everything else was in, in there. Jesus. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Yeah. He considered himself an eyewitness, and so did most people. Yeah. I thought that was probably the reason he could. But the biggest biggest hurdle was it had to be quoted by the first century church fathers. Uh, Their quotes of the Bible are enough to put together the entire entire New Testament and most of the Old Testament, because that's how frequently they quoted scriptures. They were quoted by everybody in the the church at that time, and the the first and second century founding fathers of Christianity all quoted those verses and they put so much of the Bible in their, their, their writings that the Bible can be put together just from, from their writings other than a handful of verses. You know. um, 
But yeah, that was one of the criteria that it, they had to had to be an eyewitness. They had to know who wrote the book, which is the one reason that Hebrews almost didn't make it into the book because they don't know for sure who wrote it. <laughs> being being an eyewitness is very loosely interpreted. I think I was thinking it took 1,500 years the Bible was written by over 1,500 years by 40 authors in three different languages and has no contradictions in it. The 40 author part is the amazing part of that. Now, we could talk literally about the same topic and it, you know, there'd be contradictions. You get a college professor who writes three and four books, contradicts himself almost all the time over his three or four books, and we've got 40 authors that don't contradict each other. Now, we see some progression in, in truth. We see it getting deeper and deeper because God says, okay, now you're ready for the next, next thing. And there's, there's a progression in truth. Sharon said, you know, certain things are learned over time to add to the truth that we have. Uh, and we're not ready necessarily the very first time we hear something. You, know, you, may even hear, you may hear something four or five times before it finally rings into your head like, oh, oh, I need to believe this. Uh, and so this is true, and I've come to that same place. Every once in a while, I read something going, wow, I've never seen it this way before, and I start having to research something and maybe change the way that I think. And I mean, I've only been studying for a short time, 40 years. I mean, just a, just a little, little bit of time, you know. And I still end up coming to places where I get a new revelation about something. The idea of the red letter, because like I said, I was taught the same thing. Red letter is more important. Yeah. You know, nobody actually stated it that way, but it was always, look, this is it. Jesus spoke this, Jesus spoke this, Jesus said this, Jesus said that. Yeah. And it took me years, I was probably in my 30s before it kind of all of a sudden dawned on me what a stupid idea that was. Yeah. Right? Not that I ever rejected the rest of it, but why is anything spoken in the Gospels more important than the rest of the Bible that is all God's word? And, you know, we need to be able to keep that in mind. I don't know why we got on that, but it is little things that we can believe that can just impact how we, how we think about things. Uh, why do so many churches not study the Old Testament? Is because Jesus' words are what's important. And then Paul teaches about Jesus. So why go, why go to the Old Testament? Because none of that's about Jesus when it's all about Jesus. You know, you know, so we look at this and say, but you understand how one little belief system affects everything you do toward the scriptures. And there's lots of churches that barely ever will go to the Old Testament. If they do, they'll talk about maybe creation. And there's some churches that don't believe in creation. They might talk about uh, the Ten Commandments. They might talk a little bit about David. Maybe Joseph. Joseph's a pretty fav you know, favorite character. And outside of that, they don't talk about much of anything else. It's like that fine line of a, you're off track and like... Which is why we need teachers. That's why we need to be, be accountable to other people. Because it is easy to get off on a, on a sidetrack. And this is why I'm very picky about who teaches children. Because a teacher that just in their heart believes that Jesus' words are more important and says it, plants that seed in that child, and that child believes it for that on. But this is how easy something really simple can change the way we think. It has a huge impact 
where God always forgives. You know, well, that's true in one sense, but we need to be careful how we say that because there are people who believe all people go to heaven because God is loving and would not send anybody to hell because they went back to God forgives. God is righteous and holy and brings judgment upon people that deserve it. So little things, little things that we believe, and which is why we have to be careful of the teachers that we listen to because they can lead us down the wrong path and they'll sound good. Which is why I say we need to be good Bereans. Anytime you're listening to somebody, check out the scriptures and what they're saying. Is what they're saying true? Does it match all of scripture? Not just the one place that they're at, but all of scripture. Does it match up? Because if it doesn't, it's going to have impact on your life. It's going to have an impact on the way you think about God. The way you act around God. The way you treat the word of God, the way you, the, what you're looking for in a teacher. You know, all these little things will come to play and they start in by just little tiny seeds of doubt or falsehood. And they grow. And if you've ever seen weeds that get, you know, a tree, you know, a tree gets in the wrong place and if you don't get it when it's, when it's first started and it's growing too close to your house or pool or, or or fence, you're going to be in trouble at some point you know, when that tree gets big enough to take out what it's too close to. And we've got to be careful. Too many times we let something get in us and we let it take root. And you know what? When God comes to take that thing out of us and he has to dig deep into our heart, deep into our soul, it hurts. <laughs> He says, all right, I'm going to remove this tree. I know it root goes down 20 feet into your soul, but we're going to, we're going to take it out. Oh, God, it hurts. <laughs> yep. God, I don't even know how to think anymore because I believed this for so long. He goes, yep, but we're going to get rid of the false teaching. And he will do this to us all the time. And it's hard for some of us when we've been learned another way of thinking and then have to change. Because it's really hard to take God's word and say, God, I'm going to believe what you say even though I believe something for 20 or 30 years. And you're sitting there, how do I integrate these when they can't be integrated? All right? I'm going to add the oil and the water together and somehow I'm going to make them mix. And God's saying, no, get rid of the one. <laughs> get rid of one and you keep only the truth. And yet it is hard. Somebody who's been raised in another religion especially if it's close to Christianity, has to work on getting rid of all their old way of thinking to be able to put Christ in the right place. And it's tough. The, the later somebody gets saved in life, the later they make their decision to follow, truly follow God, the more garbage they have in their life that they have to work out of their life in a way of thinking. But this is the criticalness of what do we allow to take our mind? Paul tells us in Corinthians that we're to take captive every imagination of our heart. That is good and bad and everything else. Everything I've been taught, everything that comes to my mind, take captive and put it in under the word of God. Because that's what's important. If it does not match the word of God, get rid of it. Now, I know that's easier said than done, but it, it's what we must do. And little things that come in, just little things. In our, in our country, in our world right now, you know, people don't even think twice about getting into debt. Yet all through the Bible, God says, don't get into debt. 
that you're the servant of the lender, the slave of the lender. Over and over again, he puts this in, and yet in our day and age, Christians are in debt, a lot of debt, because they just aren't putting God's word in front of what they've been taught. Yeah. And it's easy to do. It is so easy to put things in front of God's word, usually because we don't know any better, but it is easy for it to happen. All right. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity you've given us. Lord, help us to always keep in mind to put you first, your word first in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.